price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're a wizard, you're a bruiser, go play head out. It's an episode on Shrek, okay? I'm hungover from playing Final Fantasy VII Remake until 5 in the morning. Only shooting stars break the <laughs> mold. <laughs> so I'm going to be that shooting star, that hungover shooting star that is low-key thinking about the Final Fantasy V Remake, uh, remake that popped at midnight last night. While we do an episode on stupid Shrek. Hold on, I can't believe you're so enamored with this game. I thought love was only true in fairy tales. Oh my God, in heaven, Jake Young. I'm so, so Jake made me learn about Shrek this week. I made no one fault. do anything. I just <laughs> thought that the world needed something fun, something bouncy, something a little bit sassy. A little bit sarcastic. Nope. I'm going back to Battlestar Galactica. I want <laughs> sad spaceship discussions <laughs> as as they headed to the dystopian future uh, with their secret sexy robot lady. Uh, no, I don't want that, actually. Jake, you're right. Watching Shrek 2 this week for the first time was a lot of joy, was a lot of fun. Uh, I do enjoy this franchise. I'm pretty sure I saw Shrek in the theater and had a great time as they did a bunch of things that now is so commonplace when it comes to <laughs> especially CGI uh, animation films, uh, especially the playing of contemporary and golden oldie pop hits <laughs> all, all throughout the, the, the movie. That actually, I'm realizing now, was kind of established with Shrek oh, in a absolutely. lot of ways. Um, I will say Shrek 2 is maybe one of the best movies that DreamWorks has made DreamWorks animation has made. Um short of like a couple of other like real solid bangers, but it is like for all the memes, Shrek 2 is a wonderful movie. It nails it that um holding out for a hero sequence is like maybe like perfect cinema with the giant cookie and the fight scenes. You know, the uh-huh. whole movie pays off to that exact moment. And then all that goodwill, all of that weird, like, oh, shit, I think Shrek told a good story, is evaporated when they bust into Livin' La Vida Loca for no reason whatsoever. Besides, I guess, like, I think they were going with, like, oh, we got Antonio Banderas, and he's, like, he speaks Spanish, 
And this is Spanish music because <laughs> Ricky Martin. It is. This is like the most produced thing ever. And it, it's <clears throat> so funny. And I think that is maybe the theme of this because I was saying to Jake before he was like, oh, I never quite caught the hook on this one. And I, and I said to him, well, maybe the hook on this one is sometimes development hell pays off. In the case of Shrek, this is true because it was in development hell for years and years and years. And it is this bizarre amalgamation of 800 different voices of of years and compromises years. Compromises upon compromises yeah, upon compromises. This is what you get. And people loved it. So maybe sometimes it works out. Hold it. I, already, this is, you know, we haven't been recording for like barely five minutes. You already nailed a very important thing that I just can't believe I didn't see with my eyes. The innate tension that w- what makes Shrek so memeable, what makes it such this weird uh, cultural property is the exact thing you just described, which is, uh, Shrek defines itself as being crude and against Disney. It defines itself as being the bad boy. The entire movie right. is just a prolonged. The the movie open Shrek one opens with him taking the Disney storybook opening and wiping his green butthole with it. Right. But it's just as cynical, just as totally. produced, just as controlled as anything that Farquaad had made in the in the kingdom of Duloc. For sure. That and is And that that weird like that exact pose counter contradicted with the actual way it's created makes it so rife with like just meme energy that you know it's like <laughs> hey this isn't your parents this ain't your 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 mom and dad's fairy tale but also we have a cross promotion with chef boyardee and mm-hmm. um we got justin timberlake in the third one because we hear that's popular <laughs> yeah it is it is shrek and we are going to talk about it today I have to talk about it for the next hour, and you have to listen to it for the next hour. <laughs> Don't put say. this on me. We, this is a collaborative <laughs> process. I put out, I forgot, I said maybe we should do Kung Fu Panda. No one's mad at Kung Fu Panda. I mean, oh, same difference. I David Cross is plays a weird, <laughs> I forget which one he is. I think he's a monkey. I will say this, though. I found Rolling Stone put out a fucking straight-up oral history of Smash Mouth's All-Star. It's hilarious. And it's my world right now, and I can't wait to get to that. Uh, and you, w- yeah, you will be learning quite a lot about the making of All Star <laughs> by Smash Mouth today as well. So buckle up, kitties. Let's take a, a, a whirlwind ride that starts with the founding of a production company. It starts with the be- very beginnings. Of DreamWorks Pictures. By the way, I kid. This is actually a very interesting to me. I had a great time researching this episode. It is because there's so many elements, and there's so many. There's I, I, we get to talk about Mike Myers today. We get to talk about um, clearly not that. Int- we get to talk about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> we get to talk about John Lithgow. That's who I was going to bring up. John Lithgow. The the career beginnings of Cameron Diaz. It's a fascinating fascinating romp through many different people's lives but it all starts with the founding of dreamworks pictures in 1994 by steven spielberg jeffrey katzenberg and david geffen spielberg i don't think i have to elaborate on here et close encounters of the third kind 
uh, so Jurassic Park. We've talked about Spielberg. He's made a Jaws. He's made a bunch of amazing Hollywood blockbusters. Katzenberg, I believe we have talked about in the past. He was the villain in our Toy Story uh, episode, which, honestly, you should go back and listen to because it all relates to each other in terms of the early foundations of CG animation and the the behind-the-scenes weirdness at Disney at that exact time. But it basically boils down to the fact that you know what? No, you have your notes. You tell you tell the story you wanted to tell. I'm sorry. Yes, let me tell my twisted tale. Gather round, my children. I shall tell you of very rich Jewish men and their weird egos. Don't look at that stain on my pants. It's a, yes, it is probably a pee stain, but don't worry about it. Listen to the woe tale instead. Katzenberg of the Jeffrey sort. <laughs> Is a producer known for some of Disney's biggest hits, such as Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. That's all I was going to say. What were you going to say, Jake? Oh, well, okay. (laughs) The story of Jeffrey Katzenberg, like, only, I feel like in recent years, people have been fully unpacking, and the actual impact that it had on the the childhoods of both uh, millennials and Gen Z kids is insane how, like... Just a weird circle of studio executives kind of formed our entire cultural backdrop. Uh But it boils down to the fact that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg worked uh, under Michael Eisner during the Disney Renaissance. And technically, Katzenberg was kind of put in charge of the flailing Disney animation studios. We talked about this in the Don Bluth episode, that there was the Disney Dark Age that was in full yes. swing in the 70s and 80s. It's very fascinating. Actually, if you you should actually, actually listen to the Toy Story episode and the Don Bluth episode to really get a good precursor to this episode, for sure. You bring up a great point, Jake. And so, Katzenberg, it's, it's a little bit weird just how and why... You know, how much credit Katzenberg takes uh, for, you know, this turnaround within Disney animation. But the point is, he's in charge and Disney animation turned it around during those years. And um, he desperately wanted a promotion. He wanted to be higher up in the Disney chain of command. And it was actually at this time, too, he was trying to puff himself up. And he said to to everybody around him, all of his coworkers, like, you don't refer to me as Katzenberg anymore. You refer to me as Dogsenberg. <laughs> and that last name never picked up and never caught when everybody just pretended that he never said that. And he continued to be Jeffrey Katzenberg. So within Disney, Katzenberg gets a ton of what he sees as huge slights. He was promised the second in command under Eisner. Uh, But Eisner said, listen, I'd love to, but, you know, there's this beloved uh, guy named Frank Wells and, you know, he's the number two and I couldn't possibly, uh, you know, promote you while he's still around. Uh, A few months after that promise was made, Frank Wells died in a horrific helicopter accident. Oh, my God. And uh, Katzenberg immediately started calling Eisner, being like, so, huh, hmm, hmm? And Eisner <laughs> was like, large. you fucking ghoul, <laughs> you horrible <laughs> little man. We're not going to do this right now. So Katzen- Katzenberg instead ends up uh, approaching Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. 
And let's talk about David Geffen for a second. David Geffen started out in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency and ended up starting his own record label in order to sign a young Jackson Brown, which led to the founding of Asylum Records and huge hits from musicians like the Eagles, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, and many more. Later, he founded Geffen Records and then the Geffen Film Company, which pumped out odd hits like Little Shop of Horrors, Risky Business, and Beetlejuice. So you've got this music man... This, this master of the summer blockbuster and this master of the animation blockbuster all getting together to create DreamWorks. Well, Spielberg was also an animation guy through Amblin Entertainment. Sure, of course. As we mentioned in the Don Bluth episode. Yes, absolutely. Uh, another thing that kind of influenced Katzenberg is the fact that he was, again, as part of Disney's animation department, he was very hands-on with the... Uh, production and development of Toy Story. And it was actually a big, another big ego bruise for him that he um, wanted Toy Story to be a little bit raunchier, a little bit sassier, a little bit more teen-focused than the very heartwarming movie it ended up being. He wanted to put a penis on the Slinky Dog. I do remember (laughs) that. And he wanted to put lipstick on the Tyrannosaurus Rex for some reason. He was very into red lipstick on dinosaurs. They, it's literally, um, they just wanted a scene where Woody and Buzz just watch Sid, just like J.O. to some some early 90s uh, dial-up porn. And test audiences just hated it. They were like, the image takes too long to load. It's like... (laughs) Sid is like clearly uncomfortable. It's like a hundred percent. Didn't put a towel down on the office chair. It's just... apparently apparently there were three throw ups and four walkouts during yeah. the test footage of Toy Story. So Katzenberg and um, one person did and one person did come though. One person came and left the movie theater. I do remember that. It's also super clutch that Katzenberg's. It seems like the lesson he took from uh, his time at Disney was celebrity voices because. We could almost, if we ever do an episode on Aladdin, Robin Williams' mm-hmm. role in Aladdin was a secret until the movie was released. And that kind of sparked this entire, uh, you know, the, the necessity of celebrity cameos and voices within animated films to kind of bring in older audiences. Very interesting. So we have, so we have Katzenberg primed to believe in celebrity voices, to fucking hate his former employers at Disney, <laughs> and to, like, have this honest-to-God belief that there's, like, room for, a like, a nastier, more teen, uh, rebellious-focused animated picture. We also have Spielberg, who bought the rights to William Stieg's Shrek book. Yes. Called Shrek with an exclamation point. Yes, William Stieg's... All right, cool, we're talking about this now. William Stieg's Shrek the book... Uh, is is yeah written and illustrated by William Stieg. He, this is a guy who grew up in the Bronx and later was referred to as the quote king of cartoons since he had done more than twenty six hundred drawings and a hundred and seventeen covers for the New Yorker dating back to the nineteen thirties. This is around the same time that Charles Adams was also doing gags for yes! uh, the New Yorker. Check out the Adams Family episode. You guys have a lot of episodes to listen to before even attempting to chip away at the lore, (laughs) the background, the history of the Shrek. Honestly, this is bigger than Dune. We're going to cover this more bigger than Dune. To to paraphrase um, a brief history of time, (laughs) to tell the story of Shrek, first you must build the entire universe. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So also... 
Going back to William Stieg, later in his career, he starts writing and illustrating children's books, gaining notoriety. And by the way, way later in his career. I think he was like in his 60s when he started writing children's books and became a huge success off of that. Very successful guy. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, do you – are any of these books uh, – like were any of these in your uh, story – were any of these in your, your, I guess, wheelhouse when you were a kid, when you were in that storybook phase? Sylvester and the Magic Pebble – no. Uh, that started Talking Donkey. It was very, I had that one. It was traumatic. He was trapped as a rock and it felt very claustrophobic. Oh, you had these? I did not. The Dr. DeSoto series? I fucking loved Dr. DeSoto. Really? Oh, great. So you can speak to, You can speak towards this. This is great because I have none of these in my library. I was a stinky cheese man. Oh, stinky guy. cheese is also very good. Um, but <laughs> uh, hold on. I'm just going to need you to look up Dr. DeSoto while I try and describe the plot. Okay. Um, it involves a humble mouse couple a long married mouse couple the husband is a dentist and he uh treats large animals and there's all sorts of fun different illustrations of how the mouse uh this tiny mouse can treat larger animals and one day a fox walks in and usually dr DeSoto does not treat carnivorous animals that eat mice but the poor fox is so hurt and his tooth aches so much that dr DeSoto is like okay you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna help and uh, under anesthesia, the fox literally just starts saying out loud, mm, I'm going to eat this mouse. <laughs> this dumbass mouse, I'm going to eat him. And so uh, I believe, uh, I forget how it exactly resolves, but Dr. DeSoto glues his mouth shut <laughs> and sends him on his way. Uh, the point is, if you look at the artwork, a million furries and vor artists were born from Dr. DeSoto. Well, it's also an interesting style because, it, and it works for Shrek. It's like a roughshod style. It's squiggly lines. It's not perfect lines. They're broken in points. It has a loose goose style to it. I don't really know how, how best to describe it, but it works, I think, really well for a big, green, rude, anti-hero ogre. And that's what he loved. He loved anti-heroes. Claudia Nelson, who was a curator of the of a William Stieg Museum exhibit, said, Shrek is an anti-hero, and Stieg always said the perfect hero is a flawed hero. He always identified with the underdog. And so, you know, and, and, and I feel like the style really works well for that. It's, it's a playful, fun, childlike illustration approach and the book features the donkey friend also features i I read i read shrek i read shrek whoa okay and it has a journey to meet a princess but it does deviate quite a bit the script the screenplay that that is from the source material is that not correct jake there's deviations upon deviations upon deviations um but the core the core thing of shrek is it's this very crudely drawn storybook where Instead of uh, a prince or a princess, the hero is just every page just talks about how gross he is, how he's covered in lice, how his burps can like melt steel, how everyone hates him. There's, uh, you know, he can cook a pheasant with just by looking at it because he's so ugly, but (laughs) he's happy. He's 100% proud of it. The book is about how Ah. happy and confident he is in his disgustingness. And that's kind of the uh, the the thrill, the 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 kind of giddy subversion is that like that's right, I smell bad, I was born in a dank hole, nobody likes me, I'm gross, and that's great. So me in my twenties. Yes, uh, the donkey literally appears in like two and a half pages. There, there is not ah. a hilarious donkey relationship happening, 
But um, the core thing, I think, to relate from the book is that Shrek is basically sent out on his own because he's like a teenager or he's just old enough to leave the house. And his uh, ugly parents, his ogre parents, want to send him out into the world to terrorize it. Like, he is legit a fairy tale monster, and it's told from his perspective. Um, there's other little characters. There's, like, a evil... There's a witch. There's a, there's a knight. There's, there is a ugly princess, the joke being that he is actually on his way to find an ugly princess because that is what is beautiful to him. But mm-hmm. um, the princess in the Shrek book is, like, this... Very upsetting, thick-necked, vulture, ah. scaly thing that does not resemble Princess Fiona at all. <laughs> right, it's not, I mean, the, the there's a vibe, there's this slight connection between the book and the screenplay, but it, again, development hell. Scripture right after scripture right after scripture right. It is very foreign at the end of the day from the book. Shrek the movie is definitely going against Disney tropes, while Shrek ah. the book is definitely going against, like, uh, kind of fairy tale tropes. stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, just to throw it out there, the word Shrek is a derivation of the Yiddish word Shrek. Yes, yes. Uh, which means, like, fearful or ugly or monstrous. Uh, and I think the same word is in German, because Yiddish and German is kind of, they're mushed together. So, Shrek, if you... <laughs> If you if you want to say something is scary and gross, it is Schrech in uh, German. I our fifteen German fans will appreciate that level of representation I've given them. Fantastic! So Katzenberg approaches Geffen and Spielberg about forming a live action studio. The two agree under three conditions: they would make fewer than nine movies a year, they would be free to work on other with other studios if they wanted, and they would go home in time. For dinner, right around this time, producer John H. Williams discovers the book Shrek through his children and takes it to DreamWorks upon their founding. Williams said, every development deal starts with a pitch, and my pitch came from my then-kindergartner in collaboration uh, with his preschool brother. Upon our second reading of Shrek, the kindergartner started quoting large segments of the book, pretending he could read them. Even as an adult, I thought Shrek was outrageous, irreverent, iconoclastic, gross, and just a lot of fun. He was a great movie character in search of a movie. Katzenberg purchases the rights for the film from Stieg for just $500,000 and puts it in active development in November of 1995. But as you mentioned, I guess Spielberg had bought the rights Back in 1991, he had Bill Murray in mind for Shrek and Steve Martin to play the donkey, apparently. Uh, But I digress. Let's talk about Andrew Adamson, our one of our directors. Andrew Adamson. I don't even I want to. Maybe you have this better than I do. How he actually got the gig, because it makes no sense to me. He jumped from like stooge to director of a massive animation project in, in a leap, in one single swoop, and I'm not really sure how it happened. Maybe he's good at, at uh, brunches or something. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone. Plus, spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We almost have to talk about PDI, Pacific Data Images. We will definitely talk about PDI, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, if DreamWorks is the Disney of this scenario, then PDI is the Pixar of this scenario because... Um, We talked about Pixar as if they were the only game in town. They were this revolutionary company founded by former Disney animators, and they invested in 3D animation technology in an era where the computers were barely able to do anything resembling that uh, under the premise that someday this technology will be there and they'll be the ones who are responsible for it. Pacific Data Images was founded in 1980 by Carl Rosendahl, and uh, a $25,000 loan from his father. The initial goal of the company was, quote, entertainment using 3D computer animation. That is back in 1980. Their first client was Brazil's largest TV network, Rede Globo, I believe is how you pronounce that. What you need to, okay, so what you need to know about PDI is they were working on these underpowered computers. They had very... While Pixar had these pie-in-the-sky dreams about what computer animation could be, PDI was just kind of tinkering and just working within their limits. You know, they didn't have the same gigantic backing of uh, Steve Jobs or George Lucas behind them. Yeah, they're literally, for for Red A Globo, the Brazilian network, they're making motion graphics and logo animations. Very simple stuff. No, they're the logo guys. This is what, yeah. this is this is kind of the mind blow. This uh, I love when we do research like this and there's just these weird like sideways things where we find out the secret origins of some like barely considered at like aspect of culture but think about like that 80s early 90s tv opening credit cg think about like the opening to entertainment tonight or like a 90s episode of jeopardy with the logo spinning around or like you know uh stuff like hbo with the swooshing logos and stuff that weird kind of janky, it's almost its almost become vaporwave aesthetic. It's like this lost future nostalgia. You know what I'm talking about? Right, that, like, right. Star fields and swipes and uh, Roman columns and just various simple CG forms floating in a black space. PDI were those guys. They were the ones you paid to get that cool 3D, the future 3D animation logo for your TV company. By 1985, they have dominated over 50% of this market. They're doing work for logos like ABC, CBS, HBO, MTV, Showtime, among many others. In the late 80s, they end up moving to motion graphics uh, and doing commercials as well as 3D visual effects, their big thing in the late 80s, early 90s, was actually their morphing technique. They were the ones responsible for that crazy technique that you see at the end of the Michael Jackson black or white video, where everybody's changing different races, different colors, mm. different everything, you know, it's different facial structures. It's white. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. That scene. And this is when Andrew Adamson comes in, I believe, Jake, is because their first film work was for Batman Forever, The Arrival, Terminator 2, Toys and Angels in the Outfield. 
Uh, by the way, they also did that crazy weird 3D Homer Simpson in yes. the uh, Simpsons Halloween episode that I loved. The Homer the, to the third or whatever it is. That they they yeah. understood that, they're, that they were making strides towards 3D character animation. And a lot of the team uh, that ended up working for on Shrek... Uh, were early kind of, um, they were kind of cut loose and given budgets to like make short films and stuff. So uh, people like Raman Hui, uh, Glenn McQueen, uh, these are just random faces that you wouldn't care about unless you actually um, watched a ton of behind the scenes of Shrek videos on YouTube that I did. (laughs) But these are the same guys there talking about their animation system. And so they made a bunch of shorts and they, that Simpsons thing, the Homer Cubed, uh, even though they made it on no budget whatsoever, it was a gigantic showcase for them to show how much they can do character animation. Ooh, erotic cakes. Fun fact, I learned this during uh, research. Uh, they didn't think, PDI initially didn't think they could pull off uh, the lighting for Homer in that scene. And there was initial plans to have Dan Castellanata, uh just walk around L.A. in a fat Homer costume. <laughs> That's so funny. And they decided they'll just do it anyway, even if the technology wasn't there. Um, so they got that. That added to... That really was the final nail for their animation kind of portfolio. And that's what got them the deal with DreamWorks in 1995 to make Ants. Yes, and Ants is this big jumping off point uh, for for the whole company. For like, There would be no Shrek without Ants in a lot of ways. So many people came from Ants. Andrew Adamson, born and raised in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. Our future director's father was a computer engineer, which I think gets him set off on this path. Adamson moved to San Francisco at the age of 24 after missing a university enrollment deadline due to a car accident. And instead, he is recruited by Pacific Data Images to work in the U.S. on commercials and station IDs, which led to gigs as a technical director for films such as the ones we already mentioned, Toys, Angels in the Outfield, and later as a visual effects supervisor for Batman Forever, A Time to Kill, and Batman and Robin. Early on, working on Shrek. So essentially what happens is... Initially, Shrek was supposed to have live-action backgrounds with the characters being mo-capped, computer graphics composited into these backgrounds. And after a year and a half of work, they screened a test of this, and this is Katzenberg's reaction to it. It looked terrible, it didn't work, it wasn't funny, and we didn't like it. So (laughs) they end up turning to uh, Pacific Data Images, and that's how Adamson slips in because even before this for PDI he's a technical director for films so he gets this gig miraculously as the director on Shrek Adamson and Katzenberg immediately start butting heads though Adamson is trying to get these slip these like more adult sexual jokes into the material he's got Guns and Roses on the soundtrack and I believe it's Katzenberg who pulls Kelly Asbury in to join the production as co-director around this time in order, essentially, it's the the classic producer getting their guy in to to keep you know to write the ship in ter- in, in terms of the way the producer wants things to go. Mm-hmm. Kelly Asbury studied animation and filmmaking at the California Institute of the Arts and got his start at Disney doing storyboards for stuff like 
The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, all of these Katzenberg movies. Uh, <laughs> so obviously he's Katzenberg's guy. Asbury, though, would leave just a year later. This is the kind of development hell we're talking about. Mm. We will hear more from Asbury later when we talk about the sequel. Asbury leaves after a year. This is in 1997, by the way. We're, we've been working on this movie now for, what, three years at this point or something like that? Asbury leaves to go work on Spirit Stallion of Cimarron. And um, he's replaced by story artist Vicky Jensen. Vicky Jensen began painting animation cells at the age of 13 and went on to study at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco and California State University, Northridge. She got her start in the biz as a background artist in Hanna-Barbera as just like everybody else in the world. Hanna-Barbera with their million staff members in 1977. And then she moves on to be a storyboard artist for Warner Brothers, Marvel, and Disney Television. Uh, and was actually a design and color stylist on, of course, we have to mention it, Mighty Mouse, The New Adventures, the most <laughs> pivotal, important animation show of all time, as well as The Ren and Stimpy Show. She later moves over to DreamWorks in the year 2000 to work on the film The Road to El Dorado, which led to a story artist gig on Shrek. Was it the year 2000? Probably not the year 2000. Okay, scratch that. The two directors decide to work on the film in halves, so the crew knew who to go to ask specific questions. But according to Adamson, quote, we both ended up doing a lot of everything. We're both kind of control freaks, and we both wanted to do everything. Early on, by the way, the early art design for this, for this thing uh, early sketches were done in Photoshop in 1996, 1997, and they had Shrek living in a garbage dump near a human village called Wart Creek and later living with his parents, which is that way in the book. They actually kick him out of their swamp in that in, in, in the book. The donkey was modeled after a real miniature donkey early on named Pericles or Perry that lived in Barron Park in Palo Alto, California, which is cute. Art directors visited California's Hearst Castle, Shakespeare's old haunt, Stratford-upon-Avon in England, and Dordogne in southwestern France for inspiration. Dordogne is like this beautiful estate. Uh, and a magnolia plantation in Charleston, South Carolina served as inspiration for Shrek Swamp. But these are early designs. And the thing you have to understand is, through all of this, all everything we're talking about, they don't know what the exact voice of the script is. They don't know where they're, they they lose it. We're about to get into that with Chris Farley. The, the, the whole project doesn't really seem to find itself until after Mike Myers gets cast in the role. But they just, it's a lot of missteps. It's a lot of trial and error, trying different animation stuff, trying different directors, trying different cast members. And again, it's it's a miracle that this thing ended up working out because again, this is development hell the fairy tale. It is yeah. it is just a non I, I can't believe this thing actually made it out in the condition that it did. And it's all thanks to a little known band named Smash Mouth. <laughs> but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Initially, Nicolas Cage is offered the role of Shrek, but he turns it down because, quote, when you're drawn in a way it says more about how children are going to see you than anything else. And so I care about that. He didn't want to be seen as an ogre to the children. Mm. That is why Nicolas Cage turned it down. After that, classically, if you know anything about Shrek, you know this. Chris Farley is hired to voice the role, and it actually recorded somewhere between 85 to 95% of the dialogue for the film before he passed away in December of 1997, 
due to an overdose of cocaine and morphine. Vicki Jensen had this to say. For a long time, the movie didn't know what it wanted to be. One problem was unavoidable. Chris Farley had died, and the story had been geared around him. So when he went, the story kind of went with him. It went through an upheaval while they tried to find the right tone for it. I think they were really close to shelving the project when a few of us came into story to try and find a tone that we could work with. When Kelly Asbury moved uh, on to Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, I became head of story, along with Randy Cartwright, along with Andrew Adamson, who stayed on as director. We started pulling little pieces together out of what remained, and part of the way through, Jeffrey decided that I should be directing. A few months later, we started production. And that's the story of how this essentially all came together. So uh, initially, they were working on a adapted screenplay by the guys who wrote Aladdin, yes. Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. And mm-hmm. they were very, very much uh, keyed in to Farley's tone, Farley's kind of voice. The same way that Genie was kind of written for uh, right. Robin Williams, Shrek was Chris Farley. And that the way they so adapted the sense. book... Um, and the way it interacted with Chris Farley's character is he is a younger, more sensitive and kind of brash, um, like uh, defiantly brash, almost a teenager kind of figure. Um, there's actually this was famously included in the special features on the Shrek DVD. But there is uh, audio. You know, you can find a scene of Chris Farley as Shrek in uh online actually mary if you can play just a little bit from that campfire scene um i think it's really important to kind of lay out how the movie used to be what the tone used to be man there's nothing like a fire and a noble romantic mission to warm the cockles of your heart yeah i like my cockles room temperature thank you very much hey if you're not doing this for cockle warming why are you doing it simple fartwad gets his princess i get what i want which is? Now, come on, what do you want? I don't have time to set it to music. Oh, this is another one of those onion things. No, this is one of those drop it and leave me alone things. Well, why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you want to talk about it? Well, why are you answering the question with a question? Why are you asking questions I don't want to answer? Why are you blocking? I'm not blocking. Then why do you have problems expressing your wants? I don't. I want you to shut up. See? No problem. You're just displacing your anger. Believe me, it's properly placed. You're really mad at whoever did this to you. No one did anything to me. Yes, yes, yes. Someone hurt you so bad. Someone hurt you many years ago. Leave my parents out of this. Breakthrough. Fantastic. So this is a more sensitive Shrek. It's a, it's a you know, caught, you know, really caught up on the rejection from his parents, kind of feeling alone and scared and uh, kind of making his way in the world. Whereas the Mike Myers Shrek is more world weary is kind of uh, an uh, you know a self-actualized outcast who kind of uh, defines himself against society in addition to this uh the character of princess fiona was played by janine garofalo uh-huh who was supposed to be this kind of uh you know she was supposed to be the world weary kind of knows it all been there seen the world figure and uh you know without chris farley playing soft and naive Against her, her character didn't work either. Eddie Murphy worked his donkey. It's, you know, parfaits. <laughs> everyone loves it. Nothing to change there. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the, the, the entire cast was kind of in a free 
free-for-all, and it wasn't until they landed on Mike Myers being a more kind of gruff, like, hermit loner, and his relationship to his parents kind of being kind of something that he had moved past. It was just accepted as his truth, um, and kind of defining him now against Duloc, against Farquaad, and having that be the core conflict is what kind of... Uh, Mm-hmm. reinvigorated the entire thing and it was Andrew Adamson that really took control of that plot even though his name isn't on the script credits um, he is attributed to a lot of these changes Myers insists on a total script rewrite in order to break away from the Farley version Myers said this about why he took the role for two reasons I wanted the opportunity to work with Jeffrey Katzenberg and the book is a great story about accepting yourself for who you are. Mike Myers is the son of English immigrant parents from the old Swan area of Liverpool, but he grew up in suburban Toronto and started acting in commercials at just two years old. After high school, he went on to the Second City Canadian Touring Company, then became one of the founding members of the comedy store players in the UK in the mid-80s, then went back to Second City, which took him to the Chicago wing, which led to eventually SNL. And of course, he has massive success on SNL, especially with his character Wayne and the Wayne's World segment, the reoccurring role that he would do on that show, which led to a successful film career with the film version of Wayne's World, as well as the Austin Powers series of films in the early 2000s. Myers said, I have very happy memories of fairy tales. My mother used to take me to the library in Toronto to check out the fairy tales, and she was an actress, so she used to act out for me the different characters in all these fairy tales. And then my mother would change stuff, like because she's from Liverpool. Babar the elephant would be from Liverpool too. So I have all these great memories and associations with those stories. She would also classically, for certain characters, do this Scottish accent that he remembered from that time. After he fully records the lines for the role, this is the second full recording of lines. He asked to totally re-record them all with a Scottish accent, which he was inspired to do, as I said, from his mother's interpretation of stories using the same accent. He would also use this accent for fat bastard, the most and, uh, and as the dad in So I Married an Axe Murderer. Uh, which I love, So I Mar- Married an Axe Murderer. Katzenberg said it was so good, we took $4 million worth of animation out and did it again. So again, this is the third time all the voice recordings have been done for. It's crazy. In an interview, he said that it was specifically watching uh, dailies with John Lithgow doing a pompous British accent as Lord Farquaad. It kind of, uh, he thought a Scottish accent would more easily showcase the different, the class difference between uh, Farquaad and Shrek makes him more uh, salt of the mud. Uh, even though many Scottish people have routinely criticized Mike Myers' Scottish accent as not quite resembling what a Scottish person does. Also, uh, just the way, you know, it's the same reason why groundskeeper Willie in uh, The Simpsons is Scottish. There's just something about, like, an angry Scotsman that just lends yeah. itself to a little bit of comedy. I'm so happy we get to talk about John Lithgow in this episode. I love him so much. His father was a theatrical producer and director and his mother a retired actress, so he was born to the theater. 
He went to Harvard College and graduated with a focus in history and literature, but it was performing in a production of Gilbert and Sullivan's Utopia Limited at the school that convinced him to pursue acting. He makes his Broadway debut as early as 1973 in a play called The Changing Room, which earned him his first Tony Award and a slew of theatrical acting work. In 1976, he got wider attention in Brian De Palma's film Obsession. And in the 80s, he stars in Terms of Endearment, Footloose, The Twilight Zone, the movies, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment, which is amazing. I love him so much. Motherfucking cliffhanger. Yeah, motherfucking cliffhanger. Then he becomes known as a great comic actor in one of my favorite TV shows growing up, Third Rock from the Sun, as Dick Sullivan, head of a household of aliens pretending to be human. I loved this show. It was so surprisingly funny. It it was so, it should have been so corny and dumb, but John Lithgow and and Jane Curtin and the rest of that cast lifted that show up and made it so damn funny and way funnier than it ever had a right to be. I love Third Rock from the Sun. He also wrote a bunch of children's books such as the Marsupial Sue series. I love this. This is so cute. And the Lithgow Party Palooza, 52 Unexpected Ways to Make a Birthday, Holiday, or Any Day a Celebration for Kids, as well as children's music albums such as Singing in the Bathtub. I love John Lithgow so much. So he's perfect for this movie. Then, of course, even almost more perfect for this movie, Eddie Murphy as the donkey. Eddie fucking Murphy is so funny and charming in these movies. Uh, of course, Eddie Murphy, I will give a brief background, even though you, I'm sure you know the story. He was inspired to become a comedian after listening to a Richard Pryor album at the age of 15. Eddie Murphy skipped school to work late night gigs and perform in clubs at that age. He released his first stand-up special at the age of 21, which is self-titled, and his special Raw was taped at Madison Square Garden in New York City in 1987, which got a wide theatrical release. I mean, huge, huge Eddie Murphy was so huge at such a young age. Then he gets major success on SNL in the early 80s, famously performing as the adult version of The Little Rascal's Buckwheat. Of course, the hood version of Mr. Rogers, Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, and Gumby, damn it! His film work started with 48 Hours, and he becomes, again, massive. Trading Places, Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop, just huge. But then he hits a bit of a slump in the 90s, and then ends up having this whole other career, which leads to Shrek. This is the road he paves to Shrek with his family-friendly films, such as Dr. Doolittle, Daddy Daycare, and The Haunted Mansion. And that... And Flubber. Oh, and no, he, I'm sorry. The Nutty no, Professor. That's a, Flubber. Yeah. Same, no. It's based on the same property. It's based on the same property. And it's the and Flubber was, of course, the genie from Aladdin. So I <laughs> yes. see the connection there. I see the connection there. Also, to round out this very, very just solid, solid lead cast, you, of course, have Cameron Diaz as Princess Fiona. Cameron Diaz started off modeling at the age of 16. She did campaigns for Calvin Klein and Levi's, as well as being in a Coca-Cola commercial. And at just 21, she gets a starring role opposite of Jim Carrey in The Mask, which put Diaz on the map in a huge way. For me, as a uh, boy going through puberty, definitely put uh, her on the map for me. I'm talking about masturbation. And (laughs) I think that it's important that we spread the word, do it, but be careful with yourself. Don't do it too much. Don't do it. Don't aggravate yourself to such a degree that you sort of hurt yourself. 
But definitely do it. You know what, Holden? I'm going to, you zig, Isaac, just fucking mutilate yourself. Jeez just, just Louise. Use chains, no <laughs> lotion. <laughs> just, oh my uh, God, what a PSA this has turned public, into. Public, uh, do it in public. Do uh, it do it. Oh, <laughs> commit a crime is what Jake's saying right commit now. Commit crime, use chains, just like, just become, <laughs> become the ogre that you were born to be. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, yeah, and then and then this is further solidified with the summer comedy blockbuster. There's something about Mary. But then she does really cool indie shit. I forgot that she's she's in Spike Jones's being John Malkovich in 1999. She's like kind of setting the world on fire. And then she voices this role, which got her oodles of money, especially in the sequel, as we will come to find out. So she also got uh, some kung fu training as part of her role in uh, Charlie's Angels. So uh-huh. she, so the, uh, you know, the Matrix parody, the idea that she was this kick-ass princess, not your parents' princess. <laughs> this one does the punchy kicks and the Matrix does t- the punchy violate yourself. Uh, says says spawns the violator in the new PSA that we're coming out with for Wizard of the Bruiser. But moving back to Paci- what's the name of it again? Pacific, Pacific Data Images PDI. What we'll a memorable. Memorable name for a software company. PDI used their own software for the film, along with the powerhouse software Maya, which everybody was using Maya at the time, Mm -hmm. in order to get dynamic cloth animation and the hair of Fiona and Farquaad. Supervising animator Raymond Huey, who... Jake mentioned earlier, said this, we did a lot of work on character and setup and then kept changing the setup while we were doing the animation. In Ants, we had a facial system that gave us all the facial muscles under the skin. In Shrek, we applied that to whole body. So if you pay attention to Shrek when he talks, you see that when he opens his jaw, he forms a double chin because we have the fat and the muscles underneath. That kind of detail took us a long time to get right. That is PDI's uh, kind of claim to fame. This is what allowed them to be uh, second only to Pixar. Because if you think about this era, this is Toy Story 1 and 2 era Pixar. That skeletal facial animation soft uh, software. The idea that instead of just moving little vertex points, everything, they called it uh, shapers, interact with each other. And so... Facial expressions are, even though now it looks like a PS2 game, I'm sure, that level of fidelity for humanoid characters was unheard. Again, think of Sid in Toy Story and how weird and doll-like the humans in those early Pixar movies were. Shrek was genuinely ahead of the game in terms of that technology, and Katzenberg loved it. He loved the fact that they were first across the gate to get believable human characters in in a movie. Although... I will say, Shrek was only released a month before 
Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, so, you know, ah. humanoid animation was uh, was happening all over the place. But it was, this is, this is actually my pet theory. Um, it's because that facial rig software was so um, a defining trait of DreamWorks animation that I think that's the reason why the, the so-called DreamWorks face was so prevalent in all their advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, eyebrow up kind of sneer yep. that all their posters had. Yep. It's because it was like the one thing that was just a little bit harder for Pixar to do. They could nail environments, they could nail lighting, they could nail colors, but PDI and DreamWorks could mush a face around way better. One of the most difficult bits was the donkey's hair to get it to flow smoothly and react properly to different environmental conditions. Shrek has 31 sequences with 1,288 shots in every sequence total and 36 separate in-film locations, which, according to DreamWorks, was more than in any computer animated film at that time. Uh, They also used a lot of cutting-edge simulations uh, for fluid dynamics, uh, famously the weird mud shower uh, at the beginning Uh of the movie. That was, you know, unheard of at the time. Uh, The beer, the big beer explosion. There's a couple of places where they really try, uh, the milk, dipping the milk for the uh, gingerbread man torture scene. The muffin man uh, scene. (laughs) Um, And supposedly uh, animators working for Shrek actually took footage of themselves dunking mud to, to like figure out how to get the dynamics right for their simulations. So let's get into, I think, I want to at this time, begin our journey through the music of Shrek. And of course, this inches us closer and closer to my full breakdown of Smash Mouth's All-Star. But first, let's talk about Harry Gregson Williams. He did his scores for the Metal Gear series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which makes a lot of sense because Andrew Adamson, Anderson, he would end up uh, moving on to direct that after this. And uh, it was also done by John Powell, who did Happy Feet, Rio, How to Train Your Dragon, they were both coming fresh off of doing the score for Ants. Again, Ants is the like the the foundation for Shrek in a lot of ways. That movie that came out the same year as A Bug's Life, which was weird. The film also did something a bit novel for the time by incorporating pop music and hit oldies into the films such as On the Road Again, Try a Little Tenderness, and of course, Smash Mouth's All-Star. And by the way, I forgot that this... Every animation, every computer animation movie, especially if it's not Pixar, uses, even Pixar, uses like pop and oldie hits mm-hmm. with cute animals doing it. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody does that now, but it was actually novel at the time in Shrek. But let's talk about Smash Mouth's All Star. Steve Harwell. Hold on, wait, was- hold on. I just want to acknowledge that the <laughs> original song for the movie. Duloc is a perfect plate. Welcome to Duloc. Has the incredible lyrics. Please keep off the grass. Shine your shoes. Wipe your face. Duloc is a perfect place. Well done. Great Fantastic. subversion. Original Fantastic. song. Fuck Elton John. This is what this is what DreamWorks is about. No, this is what DreamWorks is about. Steve Harwell's rap group FOS, which stands for Freedom of Speech, was floundering. And he was getting frustrated. So his manager, Robert Hayes, pulled a new band together to play the popular ska punk sound dominating the San Jose scene. However, it was the third song on the album that they made together. The retro pop hit, 
Walking on the Sun that put them on the map and led to the singing or led to them signing with major label Interscope to lay down some more catchy, hook-focused alt-rock grooves. Steve Harwell had this to say. Then we were held at a higher standard. I knew the label wanted the next big thing, and I knew Greg had it in him, referring to Greg Camp, the guitarist of Smash Mouth, who also writes the songs. Harwell also had this to say about Walking on the Sun. Walking on the Sun changed music. <laughs> so don't be late. Act now. Supplies are running out. While you're still alive. Six to eight years Please, Jake, alive. let me finish. Walking, walking on the Sun changed music. It changed the way people listen to music. <laughs> uh, I've talked to other artists over the years, and they said the day that song came on the radio, they were like, we're fucked. It was so different. <laughs> it was so different, and it was so unusual, and it was so special. It just had that sound that we created. Ask anybody that's tried to copy us. You can't. You just can't. After they record the whole record, they send it to Interscope. The record company gets back to them saying, they don't have a single hit. We need another Walking on the Sun. Hayes said, one night I sat Greg down, Greg Camp, the songwriter, opened up a Billboard magazine and said, dude, let's just go through this. I want a little piece of each one of these songs. The top 50 at the time was Smash Mouth, Sugar Ray. I love how he mentioned Smash Mouth in this. Smash Mouth, Sugar Ray, Third Eye Blind, Vertical Horizon, Bare Naked Ladies, Marcy Playground, Chumbawamba. He left, and two days later, he walks into my office with a cassette tape. I popped it in, and there was All Star on this on this cassette. I stopped. Wow, 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 wow. Go for the moon. <laughs> I stopped and I looked at him. He goes, "What? You don't like it?" I said, "Are you freaking kidding me? This is a smash mouth." Now, all right, all right. Greg Camp said All Star was incubating out there while we were on the road. Paul Delisle and I would go to laundromats on the road and we would bring a bag of laundry and a bag of fan mail back when people actually used to write on pieces of paper. We would read the mail and do our laundry and we noticed that there was a common thread in all of these letters. Kids thanking us for being their band. They were sort of outcasts. They were kind of nerdy and picked on and stuff like that. Hey, I owned Astro Lounge and that describes me exactly. (laughs) Kev said... They were just these kids that liked music saying that they got picked on a lot. Paul and I sort of verbally set out to write an anthem for them. That's how it started. Vicky Jensen, the director of Shrek, co-director of Shrek, said, Most music for animated features was composed, or the songs were created for the movie. Most of Disney animated movies had original songs and were thought of as musicals. Both Andrew Adamson and I loved independent film and were influenced by ones that used current songs that helped illustrate an emotional moment. It wasn't really done in animation. So DreamWorks approaches Robert Hayes about Smash Mouth doing a cover of I'm a Believer for the movie. The band initially is like, no, that'll lame us up, man. That'll make us lame, dude. Love was out to get me. They're not into That's it. That's the way it seems. They don't want to be seen as lame. All my dreams. But then a little known human tragedy happened called 9-11. And 9-11 delays the release of the Smash Mouth album. We would not have All-Star without 9-11. So there's another thing you can blame it on. <laughs> That Smash Mouth ends up having to delay their album because of the the horrible tragedy and ends up doing I'm a Believer in that meantime to make some money, to 
lame it up a little bit. And also, so they bring them I'm a believer, and then they also go, like, like on a pedestal. They bring, oh, they're like, here's I'm a believer for the beginning of the movie, or for the ending of the movie, and here's All Star for the opening sequence. Harwell said, we had no clue how big Shrek was going to be. We had no clue. That was just a launching pad. The song was already a number one single. And then Shrek came out and we sold millions of records off that alone. The song was reborn again. The movie grosses $484.4 million against a budget of $60 million. It wins an Academy Award for Best Feature. Beats out Monsters, Inc., which is a huge fuck you. Huge fuck you. And it Supposedly was Supposedly Katzenberg put out all the stops on that Oscar campaign. There was actually, like, uh, if that year during the broadcast, they superimposed Shrek and Donkey in tuxedos in the crowd. Oh, like, wow. They, like, this was the first year the category... Like, they lobbied so hard for this movie that the animated category was invented just so Katzenberg would, like... Not it would stop like calling all of his friends and being like, "Get me a fucking Oscar." <laughs> it was it, it was also the first film since Peter Pan to compete for the Palme d'Or in Cannes Film Festival, and therefore a, a, a smash hit was made with All Star. And I would like to just say, "Wow, what a what a journey!" Nine Eleven, Walking on the Sun, which changed music. Jake, I'm so glad you forced me. To read an entire oral history of Smash Mouth All-Star. By the way, you can find that online on Rolling Stone's website. It's kind of amazing and hilarious. Check it out. I just want to point out that from from where I was researching, from a very Shrek PDI-based perspective, uh, All-Star was supposed to be a scratch track for the opening to be replaced later. And like a lot of this movie, um, what worked in the scratch audio just tested so well and just worked so well that they just kind of ended up including it in the final product. That's the story I heard. You know, this this happened a lot in the movie. The voices for uh, Gingerbread Man and uh, Pinocchio were both just people on the animation staff who had recorded scratch tracks that just, they let him stay in the movie because they liked the performance so much. You know, this was a weirdly, this is a, is, for something so laboriously developed, there is a lot of uh, seat of the pants decision making happening. I mean, we are talking, it is so insane. They bought the rights in November of 1995. The film comes out in 2001. Like, insane. Six years of development. Nine, I mean, if you, if you count Spielberg, they bought, you know, the rights were bought in 19, in 1991, Hollywood said, we want to make a Shrek movie. Yeah. And in 2000, a decade fucking later, it happens. Do you have anything else on Shrek before we move on to Shrek 2, Jake Young? No, let us move on to the, the glistening, maybe the perfect Shrek movie, Shrek 2. Myers, Murphy, Diaz all negotiate an upfront payment of 10 mil each to Unheard voice of. the sequel. Unheard Insane. Of. They made 350000 for the first movie. Ten motherfucking million. Put them big old voice acting balls on the table, dude. The writers from the first movie, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who we mentioned before, were initially attached to this one, but they insisted it be a traditional fairy tale and eventually left the project over disagreements with the producers. Instead, kind of like last time, 
director Andrew Adamson replaces them uh, and based his script on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is very interesting. That is an American comedy drama film from 1967 starring Spencer Tracy, Sidney Poitier, and Catherine Hepburn about a white woman who brings her African-American fiancé home to meet her parents. And at that time, interracial marriage was illegal in most states in the U.S., also, screenplay credit is given to J. David Stern, who wrote the Smurfs movie. Thanks, dude, for that. <laughs> Joe Stillman, who wrote on King of the Hill and Adventures of Pete and Pete. And David N. Weiss, who wrote on All Dogs Go to Heaven, which we talked about in the Bluth episode. Adamson describes an earlier version of the movie kind of focusing on Shrek kind of leading a democratic revolution in far, far away, the, you know, the land where Fiona's parents live. And he quickly threw that out of the way. He definitely said he doesn't, he wanted a more emotional character driven story and just did not see that kind of intellectual, lofty political parable as being what he uh, wanted for a Shrek movie. So yeah, it, it, it becomes the thing that it becomes. Kelly Asbury, who we mentioned earlier, who left to go work on Spirit, ends up coming back here to co-direct along with Conrad Vernon, who did Monsters and Aliens and uh, Sausage Party, the adult comedy animated Sausage Party. These two would mainly work with the animation studio Northern California, while Adamson, his focus was in Glendale, California with the voice actors. So he wanted a party while the other two did the real work. They put more human characters in this one, which had better hair and fur tech, Puss in Boots, fantastic character Puss in Boots needed special care for his fur belt and feather plume in his hat via new tech which is great there's some big names joining the cast here we've got Julie Andrews as Queen Lillian I mentioned it already but Antonio Banderas as Puss in Boots John Cleese as King Harold Rupert Everett as Prince Charming and Joan Rivers as the red carpet announcer she's fantastic I love how she's just herself in the movie and Larry King as Doris the ugly stepsister. Also, Jennifer Saunders, who uh, played Adina in Absolutely Fabulous, does an incredible job as the main antagonist in the movie, uh, the fairy godmother. Just just uh, incredible performance. Uh, obviously, her rendition of Holding Out for a Hero, I've already said, greatest cinematic moment of all time. Holding Out for a Hero, the soundtrack has so many... Uh, the Eels are on this soundtrack. Tom Waits is on this soundtrack. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds is on this soundtrack. It's kind of amazing. Of course, you have Eddie Murphy and Antonio Banderas slamming Livin' La Vida Loco, <laughs> as you mentioned before. And the big song is Accidentally in Love by the Counting Crows. And isn't that beautiful, Jake, that you made me learn about all of that this week. The Counting Crows and Smash Mouth are like an odd, <laughs> you know, they're they're like the two fish in the Pisces of of our, of, uh, of this world. The the score was composed by Harry Gregson Williams again returning for this one on a budget of 150 million. It grosses over 919 million. It it grosses almost a billion dollars. It was Jake. the highest grossing animated movie in the history of an animation and held on to the title for 10 years until uh, Finding Dory came out. It's upsetting. It's a great movie. It is genuinely a funny, touching it's movie. Solid. It's a smaller scale story. It's, uh, you know, people talk about how afterwards uh, Shrek 3 kind of 
fell off, uh, the franchise fell off a yes. cliff. I actually think Shrek Forever, even though it is tonally gonzo compared to the rest of the, the franchise, that weird, darker alternative tale uh, actually holds up and carries off a lot of themes. Um, I ended up reading a anarchist interpretation of the uh, of the series where, uh, you know, after uh, Shrek 1, the lesson, literally, the end of Shrek 1 uh, has a dragon eat the head of state and has our main characters live in anarchist, like, utopia together, free of the government in a swamp. And then immediately in Shrek 2, he goes back to, like, take part in the affairs of government. But whatever. Um, this It's so full. Of, Shrek 2 has so much heart. Um, the scene where he's walking around or he's technically riding on stallion donkey uh, while David Bowie's Changes goes on in the yeah, background. I forgot about Changes is on there, too. It's so crazy. The soundtrack is insane for that movie. It's so weird. It's just, yeah, it's it's just, it's well edited. It's well directed. It's well performed. It is a solid. And it's genuinely funny. I was genuinely Mm. laughing throughout. Antonio Banderas is amazing as Puss in Boots, obviously, because it led to spinoff films with, uh, uh, yeah, there's Puss in Boots. What is it? Puss in Boots, which which follows uh, Puss in Boots before the events of Shrek 2. And then you have another, uh, a second Puss in Boots movie after that, w- along with spinoffs. The, yeah, you said already, but Shrek the Third was directed by Chris Miller, who was a story artist on the first film, and had uh, the cast from the previous film almost entirely, along with Justin Timberlake, Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, Amy Sedaris, and Seth Rogen. Very funny people. It's a shame it wasn't as strong as it was. Uh, Shrek finds himself... Ruling over far, far away with Fiona reluctantly, while also horrified to find out that he might be a father. Shrek Forever After looks so weird, Jake. It's insane. Shrek makes a deal with Rumpelstiltskin that goes poorly. uh, And then you have, oh my God, the short films and TV specials. Man, did they just squeeze the Shrek... (laughs) The Shrek uh, branch dry of its money. Shrek in the Swamp karaoke dance party, Jake. Shrek 4D... Far, Far Away Idol, Donkeys Caroling Christmas Tacular, Shrek's Yule Log, Thriller Night, The Pig Who Cried Werewolf, which just sounds like it has nothing to do with Shrek, Puss in Boots, Three Diablos, those are the short films, then you have Shrek the Halls, and Scared Shrekless, those are the TV specials, and then two Puss in Boots TV series, and then, oh my god, there's way too many video games to name, I'm sure they're amazing, I'm sure they're all fantastic. The funniest names to me of all the video games were Hassle at the Castle, mm-hmm. Shrek Extra Large, and Shrek and Roll. Those were the three that I pulled out. Um, you have to acknowledge uh, Shrek Super Slam, which is a <laughs> a was supposed to be a cash in for uh, against you know Smash Brothers, but it was oh no Shrek Super Slam I think yeah. is what it's called. Uh, which actually you. has its own unique fighting mechanics, its own, like, it kind of has this, it's kind of the deal where, I think it kind of plays like PlayStation All-Stars, where you build up a meter to get super moves, and super moves are the only way to knock out other characters. And it has such a weird, bizarre, underground fan base that they've done ROM hacks and then actually hold tournament-level Shrek Super Slam play in a couple of conventions. That's amazing. Also, I would be remiss if I did not mention the musical, which went to Broadway in 2008 and went on to receive eight Tony nominations its first year. I tried to watch it on Netflix and could not make it through the first half hour. It is upsetting. (laughs) It is upsetting. 
setting. It is bad for your brain to watch. It ran for 478 performances and was quite successful, which is a shocker. It got a Tony. So there you go. <laughs> Please release me from talking about this, Jake. Uh, Shrek, sometimes development hell works out. I can't believe how much fucking money this franchise has made. It's made over a billion dollars. Well, we'll have to talk about it again because, unfortunately, after a couple of stumbles and missteps, DreamWorks Animation did have to shut down and it got bought out. And now Illumination Entertainment, the minds behind Despicable Me, announced their plans to release a fifth movie that is probably going to be a reboot uh, in yes. 2022. Yes, and uh, stay tuned for that for uh, when we talk about our Minions episode, our Minions episode, when Jake makes me do that next year. Uh, now, this was actually very fascinating. Also, the memes, uh, just to acknowledge the memes, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, Shrek was an early CG character, and various tools like Source Filmmaker uh, now allow people to make 3D animations uh, much more easily with much fewer people in much less time. And so, uh, the same way that, like, uh, horny people in the 70s drew Mickey Mouse fucking and, you know, thought it was, like, hilarious that da Daffy Duck would say, like, uh, fuck a lot. Uh, now they go on their computers and they make Shrek uh, do funny, weird uh, butthole dances. And that is the source of Shrek memes. Shrek is love. Shrek is life. All right. There you go. That's the end of our Shrek episode. Thank you so much for joining us. This was actually very fascinating to learn about. Uh, and yeah, if you'd like to follow us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We put out weekly episodes for just $5 a month, among other things. Check us out on there. Also, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash ho. I do streams specifically on Monday, Tuesday, and uh, Friday night, but I'm also doing extra streams now. I've been streaming my Ring Fit at Workouts, which has been hilarious. Really? And, oh, yeah. I've been doing that. Shit, I got to tune in. We can do it. I got to, you know, jazzercise. Yeah, come work out with me. It's a lot of fun, and people are really very supportive, actually, and have been very sweet about it, so that's awesome. And, uh, yeah, Jake? Uh, follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung, to hear all my thoughts and mind crimbles. And, uh, once again, plugging that Patreon. Tons of bonus episodes, tons of uh, uh, heart-rending discussions, and, of course, you can uh, talk to other patrons on our elite-tier Discord. Uh, always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. Somebody wants to me the world is gonna rub it, and I ain't gonna shop and stole it. Shit. Release me. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.